We talk a lot about Silicon Valley on this show, so it seems fitting that this week's show is brought to you by a story from there. It's National Geographic's Valley of the Boom, a limited six-part series that tells the insanely true stories of the inventors and investors who built the internet, without whom there'd be no amazing podcast like this one. This series follows three different companies that were trying to change the world using the new technology of the internet. Before Google, Netscape pioneered the first commercial web browser and launched the Browser Wars with Microsoft. Before Facebook, theglobe.com was a rapidly expanding social network site built by dreamers on a college campus. And before YouTube, a con artist on the run from the FBI reinvented himself in Silicon Valley to start a streaming video company called Pixelon, resulting in an entrepreneurial rise and fall almost too insane to be believed. But trust me, you have to see this one. From the executive producer, Ariana Huffington, and the creator of Showtime's House of Lies, and starring Lamorne Morris, Bradley Whitford, and Steve Zahn, Valley of the Boom premieres Sunday, January 13th at 9, 8 central on National Geographic. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we're going to take a little break this week from Trump trash talking because we all need a little break from Trump. And we're going to talk about something that is slightly more important right now. And that is when civilization as we know it is going to come to an end. So you're probably wondering, well, how on earth do we know that? Ah, very good question. My guest today, William Poundstone, is going to tell us. And the way he's going to tell us is with a calculation. And so he is the author of uh, 14 books. That's right, one, four. That's a lot of books that he's written. His new book that's coming out this year is called The Doomsday Calculation, How an Equation that Predicts the Future is Transforming Everything We Know About Life and the Universe. Uh, It's a fascinating look at how an equation that's been around for for many years – and has been applied to uh, to plays on Broadway and businesses and the Berlin Wall and predicted accurately when they would end or fall is now being applied to us humans and how much longer we have uh, on this earth or other planets. Um, the, the conversation is so fascinating. He explains how the chances of extraterrestrial life existing are based on this algorithm, whether we live in a multiverse or a simulation, uh, lots of really, really amazing stuff. And he's so articulate at explaining these things in a term that you and I can understand. So uh, without further ado, I'm very excited to welcome Bill to the show. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today here yes. in freezing cold LA. <laughs> uh, it's, I think, 50-something degrees. So, mm-hmm. um, All right, so let's, before we get to how the world is going to end and when it's going to end and um, if we'll actually make it to the end of this podcast, I want to know how you got to this story. And, uh, I mean, this is something that goes back decades, uh, this, this algorithm that you write about. Mm-hmm. How did you happen upon it? Yeah, well, I've always had this idea that one of the best and maybe easiest ways to find a good science book uh, is to identify a topic where you have very bright people disagreeing. So if you've got like one group of geniuses saying the other group of geniuses are completely out of their minds, that usually makes an interesting sort of story. Uh, And that's basically what this book is about. Uh, I was kind of attuned to that kind of controversy, and a few years back I began hearing about something called the Doomsday Argument, which basically says that we can use some simple math to make a prediction about how long the human race is going to survive into the future. Now, my first reaction to that is probably about the same as most of the people hearing this (laughs) podcast. It's totally stupid, I thought. I mean, how can you make a prediction about that when you really don't have data? Uh, But as I began reading some of the papers about this, uh, I found that it it isn't so crazy as, as it first seems. So it seemed a really gripping topic, and that's how I decided to write on it. So who are the two groups that are disagree on this? Are there there two different factions of scientists that say, okay, well, this is how long it'll be, and this is how long it'll be, and they're using the same algorithm to determine that? Mm-hmm. Uh, or should we go back all the way to the 18th century before we get there? What do you, what, what's the best <laughs> approach here for people to be able to understand this? Well, I would say that the dispute is over whether this is a valid technique at all. 
Uh, it, it's not that people have different ideas of what the prediction is. It's should we pay any attention to this prediction or not? All right. So let's go back to the to the how how this works. So mm-hmm. this started. When did this start again? Well, uh, basically in the 1980s, uh, there was a guy uh, named J. Richard Gott III, who's a very uh, famous astrophysicist. And uh, when he was still a grad student, he took a trip to Europe. And he went to Berlin, so like any other tourist, he went to the Berlin Wall. And he was there with his friend and started thinking about, you know, this wall has been there for some time. I wonder how long it's going to be there. And he did a little math in his head, and he said to his friend Chuck, I predict that the Berlin Wall is going to fall in anywhere from two and a half years from now to 24 years from now. And the guy said, how you do that? And he gave a little explanation of what he was doing. So he went back home, years passed, and then eventually the Berlin Wall did come down. And it was like, I think, 22 or 23 years after that prediction, so it was in the range. He got it. And he thought, well, gee, maybe I've got something here. So uh, he was kind of concerned that, that there's all these examples in history of someone comes up with a great idea, like in ancient Greece, Hero invented basically a type of steam engine. Uh, but he didn't really do anything with it, he didn't publicize it, uh, and it took almost two millennia for us to get to where he was and basically reinvent the steam engine. So Gott th- thought, well, you know, I've got this interesting idea, so I'm going to publish it. And he published it uh, in Nature, the very prestigious journal, uh, in 1993. And it sort of instantly generated controversy, uh, and really that controversy is, continues to the present day. So that's what uh, I'm basically telling so you. Let's, so, so let's just, it's hard to understand. Mm-hmm. You, you've explained it to me before, and I've read it in the book, um, mm-hmm. and it's still kind of a little difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Can you try uh, to explain it in the layest terms yes. possible, how the actual calculation works? Exactly. Uh, I found that a good place to start is, was, is with what's known as the German tank problem. Now, in World War II, the Allies were planning the D-Day invasion, and they needed to estimate about how many tanks the Germans had. Uh, And they realized they had one indirect clue, and it was that the German manufacturers put serial numbers on anything, on everything. So uh, the Allies had captured some of the German tanks, and they had these serial numbers on them. So if you think about it, say you've got a tank, and it's number 957. Well, that tells you several things. First of all, if these are consecutive serial numbers, it tells you that there's at least 957 tanks out there. But more than that, it tells you that there's probably a lot more than that because, uh, you know, it would be very unlikely that this one random tank that you just happened to capture also happened to be the highest numbered tank. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a lot more. Uh, By the same token, the fact that you've got tank number 957 probably tells you that there aren't millions of tanks because then it would be very odd that you got one of the first tanks, you know. Uh, And as it turned out, the Allies had several tanks that they had captured at various points in time. They found that not only the chassis had serial numbers, but basically all the components had. So they had a lot of numbers to work with. And by crunching all that, and the math was really pretty simple, they were able to come up with a very accurate estimate that the Germans were making about 270 tanks a week. Now, this seemed very low because the spy reports they'd had had implied it was a lot more than that. But they planned the invasion based on that, and it succeeded. And after the war, they captured the German records and found that that 270 tank prediction was almost exactly right. And so... The so the, what so they're looking at the num all these different numbers based mm-hmm. on the timeline of which they get them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now when you take that math and mm-hmm. you apply it to the Berlin Wall falling, mm-hmm. uh, how do you how can you use that in the same way? You're, mm-hmm. you're, the Berlin Wall's been up for what forty years at that point mm-hmm. uh, when when Gott was went there was that no it it wasn't as much this was nineteen sixty nine oh sixty nine uh, was the yeah, this, this was much earlier I think it had been up about. 
10 years or something. So if it's something's been around for 10 mm-hmm. years, how do you know that mm-hmm. it's going to be around for between 2.4 and mm-hmm. 24? It's not like there are multiple walls that have been built at different yeah. periods in time. Yeah. What, what he's saying is that he figured he was going to visit the, the wall like any other tourist. So his visit to the wall was at a random point in time in the wall's total duration. So since he knew how long the, the wall had stood, uh, he could make a prediction about how much longer it was likely to stand, if you assume this was at a random point in time. Okay, so if that, so, so you go through the book, you talk mm-hmm. about um, this, should we call it an algorithm? Is that the best description uh, for this yeah, math equation? Yeah, simple formula. This yeah. formula. Mm-hmm. It's been used to actively uh, uh, estimate when uh, Broadway shows are going mm-hmm. to end, when companies are going to die, mm-hmm. like Enron. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. But the part where I kind of struggle is, okay, so I'm 42 years old, mm-hmm. and somebody standing next to me could be 42, and somebody mm-hmm. standing next. And if you get 100 of us that are 42, you can't accurately predict when we're all going to die mm-hmm. as a, you know, because we're all that age. So how is it that you can predict these other things based on the age of something? Well, you have to have something where it makes sense to regard the present moment or you as a person to be a random sample. So let's say we want to use that German tank idea uh, to try and figure out how much longer the human race is going to survive, which is basically what the doomsday argument is. Well, um, you, you, you figure, first of all, um, I would need to know my serial number, which I don't. But in a sense, we do know our serial numbers because uh, archaeologists and demographers have tried to estimate what they call the cumulative population of the human race. All the humans that have been born. This is everyone who has been born from the beginnings of Homo sapiens when the population was very small uh, up to the present day where we've got 7 billion plus people living at the same time. And the most recent estimate for that is about 100 billion people. So there's a good chunk of that 100 billion living right now. But what that means is that if I regard myself as a random human, and I have no reason to believe that I'm living at the very beginning of history or at the very end, uh, I don't know that the bomb's going to drop tomorrow. I, you know, I'm not Adam or Eve. Uh, So I'm probably somewhere in the middle there, kind of like a captured German tank. Uh, So my serial number, if I had one, would be somewhere around 100 billion. Well, that gives me some clues as to how many other humans are going to be there. Now, the best way to explain how the math works, imagine that we had a complete list of every human who has lived and every human who will live in the future. So it would have those 100 billion people plus everyone else who's going to live in the future. And obviously, it would be a very long list, so imagine it would be bound up in a book somewhere. Uh, call it the Doomsday Book. <laughs> and I see that book, you know, it's in front of me. I'm not allowed to open it because the book is imaginary, but you can still imagine it. Uh, okay, so all I can say is that I have no idea where I am, relatively speaking, within that book. Uh, but I can say this, that there's a 50% chance that I'm in the first half of the book and a 50% chance I'm in the second half, okay? Okay. Uh, So let's assume for the sake of argument that I'm in the second half, which I know has a 50-50 chance of being true. Well, I also know from what I just said that I'm about number 100 billion in the chronological list of humans. So if I'm in the second half of the book and there are 100 billion people before me in the list, then I know that there can't be, you know, at very most, there could be 100 billion after me in the list. So what I'm saying, basically, is that there's a 50-50 chance that the number of humans yet to be born is no greater than 100 billion. Hmm. So that tells us a little about doomsday, and we can take it further. Uh, Suppose I want this in years. I want to know the year of doomsday as opposed to this thing about number of people born. Well, we know how many people are born each year. Currently, it's around 130 million. So divide that 100 billion by that, and you find that it would take only about 760 years to produce another 100 billion people. And that's partially because, it's not because we've only been around for that period of time, it's partially because population growth. Yes, we have a big population and a high birth rate at the present time. 
So if we assume that in the future the, the birth rate is something like it is today, you get that rough figure about 760 years. And what we're saying is that there's a 50% chance that the human race will end in no, no more than 760 years from now. And that basically is the doomsday prediction. So is that what people are predicting? Is that the, the people who believe in this calculation, are they predicting that that it's 760 years is all we have left? Roughly. Now, again, this is a very approximate uh, prediction, as you would expect. Uh, the issue is whether we should place any faith in this at all or whether, you know, it, it, the math does work. For instance, uh, you can play around with the math and get some different confidence ranges. Uh, a lot of people like to use 95% confidence because that's often used in scientific papers. And if you do that, you find uh, that you can predict there's a 95% chance that doomsday is going to occur no sooner than 20 years from now, but uh, no later than about 30,000 years from now. So even with that, you know, it's kind of telling us that the doomsday is sooner than a lot of us would like to think. Where do you get the 95% from? That's just the accuracy rating based on the calculation? or Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to go into the full math, you know, in a podcast. But if you assume that, that I'm not in the, I'm in the middle 95% of that doomsday book and do a similar thing, you'd get that range. So, uh, so you're saying between 20 years and 30,000 years. Mm -hmm. And when you look at uh, the 20 years, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's essentially when God was standing at the wall and he said that I mm -hmm. predict that uh, the wall will fall within 2.4 to mm -hmm. 24 years and we're, mm -hmm. that's the, the lower end of it. Um, that's a little, a little terrifying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets more terrifying when you consider all the other things he's applied it to. When his paper in Nature came out, that's when he uh, made this list of all the plays and musicals that were running on Broadway. Uh, and at the time, this was during the original run of Cats, you know, and he figured uh, th this was effectively a random point in the runs of all those plays that were then going on because his paper in Nature had nothing to do with that. So he used the similar math to predict when these plays were end. And, you know, he kept record of it as each play closed and found that it fit his predictions quite well. All of these Broadway yes. musicals. And he did it with companies too, right? Uh, he didn't do it with companies, but other, but people, other have. people have. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that if you predict corporate survival or how long companies stay on an index like Dow Jones or S&P 500, they also follow this math. So do you, as someone who has been enmeshed in this, mm -hmm. this calculation for so long, do you, do you think that we have 20 to... 30,000 years left? And do you, where do you think we sit on that kind of broad, long scale? Well, the funny thing is, you know, obviously in the time I've been writing this book, I've explained Doomsday to people many, many times. Uh, and I usually mention that 760-year figure. And the funny thing is, you know, everyone says, ah, oh, okay, I can believe that, you know. <laughs> they, they kind of figure, okay, they're not going to be around. Uh, no one they know is going to be around. 760 years isn't too bad, you know. So do, when you think about this, um, you, you talked a little bit about in the book that, you know, within that time period, there's mm -hmm. other things that could happen, of course. Mm -hmm. We could slow down the birth rate, which mm -hmm. would change the, the algorithm. We, we, mm -hmm. could, we could inhabit other planets. Mm -hmm. um, is that... Is that just applied to Earth and humans, or is that humans as a whole? No, humans as a whole, conscious observers, beings. Uh, but one of the things that Gott, you know, is saying is that we've all got this kind of science fiction vision of the future in which we uh, explore space, we inhabit other planets. And if you take that idea seriously, you know, we could have populations of, of trillions or quadrillions of humans across the galaxy. Uh, but if you really believe that that is destined to be true, and if you consider yourself a random sample, then you would have to say, wow, we really are at the very beginning of that doomsday book. Uh, is there any reason to believe that's true? And if you believe we really can't predict it, that's, you know, again, this... this uh, uh, circumstantial evidence that maybe we shouldn't be so sure that that's in the cards. So there are people 
a lot of people who say, oh, this calculation is, mm-hmm. is wrong. How do they argue that, A, and B, when they look at the fact that it has worked for other mm-hmm. things like the Broadway musicals and, mm-hmm. and so on and the Berlin Wall, uh, do they just say that's just a random mm-hmm. You know, occurrence that that it, it lined up, or well, it, it's funny uh, as as I uh, have several people mentioning in the book. Almost everyone who hears about this at first says that's crazy, can't possibly be true. But when you ask them why they believe that, they tend to come up with completely different reasons. I mean, one person will have one reason, one person will have another. Now, certainly, one thing that uh, that bothers people is what's known as the human randomness assumption. The assumption that I'm a random person, or if I'm visiting the Berlin Wall on my vacation, that's essentially a random point uh, in its duration. Uh, but if you look uh, again at all these situations where it does work, like you know, assuming I'm a random uh, uh, visitor going to a play, and you know, there's no reason to think I'm seeing it early or late, uh, it seems to work pretty well. Uh, so. Uh, a guy named John Leslie, a very famous philosopher, is one of the people who started out being skeptical of, uh, of the doomsday argument and ended up deciding, you know, it really does make sense. Uh, he kind of gave this example. Suppose there's some secret organization, a foundation that's very wealthy, and they've decided to, to give 503 emeralds to 503 lucky winners who were chosen at random. But the way they're going to do this is they're going to give three emeralds to people in one century and the other 5,000 emeralds to people in a later century. Now, if you win one of these emeralds, you have to take a vow of silence. You can't say that you won or you can't let anyone else know you've won. So, okay, suppose you've won one of these emeralds and you're asking yourself, do you think you're in the early century or the late century? Well, there's only three winners in the early century. There's 5,000 in the late century. So it would be reasonable to say, since you really don't know where you are, uh, that you're probably in the later century. Hmm. And you could bet that way. If, if, if everyone placed a bet uh, on that assumption, 5,000 people would be right. Only three would be wrong. It would be a very profitable uh, bet. So what he's saying, it's not necessary to say, you know, I'm completely random or I was some disembodied soul who was plunked down in a random body in a random century. Uh, I know who I am. I have my identity. All I'm saying is I don't know where I fit into the relative time frame of this emerald experiment. Uh, And because I don't know that, it's actually because I'm so ignorant of my actual position that I'm able to use this math to conclude that I'm probably in the later century. Uh, and in a similar way, I really don't know where I am relatively in human history. And if you basically, you have to assume that I'm totally ignorant of that position in time. And it's basically that ignorance uh, that allows me to make this kind of prediction. So you, in the book, you talk about there's other other things that you can apply this uh, this theory to this mm-hmm. this math to relationships and. Uh, Elon Musk simulation and so on. Mm-hmm. Can you get into a little bit of that and explain how that works? Yeah, I, I should maybe uh, just mention uh, Bayes' theorem, which is basically yeah. the, the name for this math. Uh, but it uses what most people just call circumstantial evidence. It's not direct evidence, but it is a hint. Like getting a, 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 a tank serial number doesn't prove that there aren't a million tanks, but it is pretty good circumstantial evidence. Uh, Yeah, another thing this is often used for is what's known as the simulation hypothesis, Uh, the idea that we could be simulations in uh, some some future society. In some big VR society. This is Elon Musk's thing that he says. he's very big on this. uh, Do you believe we're in a simulation? Uh, I believe that there is a reason to be skeptical about it, which I actually go into it in the book. So explain that. Okay. The the argument for it, uh, and um, a Norwegian-born philosopher named Nick Bostrom was really the one who made this uh, kind of a popular thing that a lot of people are taking, at least semi-seriously. He basically said this. Okay. Suppose that in the future they have incredible computing power and they're able to do video games or simulations just for the hell of it uh, that can basically simulate you know, an entire world of people and their consciousness and everything that happens. 
And probably, you know, people in the future will be interested in the past, just like we are. I mean, we have, uh, we have you know, costume dramas in the movies. We have uh, Civil War reenactors. We have, you know, all History sorts books. of... History books. Yeah, virtual reality and everything. So they'll probably want to simulate the past, too, and they'll be able to do it much, much better than we will. They'll be able to do it so much better that if you were one of these simulated people, you wouldn't even know that you were a simulation. So the, and so the theory, which I've also heard many, many times, is that eventually technology becomes so good that what we see is what computers see, mm-hmm. and so we could be the computers in that simulation. So how does this apply to the doomsday calculation? Well, he's using uh, somewhat similar math, this, this human randomness uh, assumption. Uh, so what he's saying, uh, basically, I mean, it's easy to say, okay, for all we know, we could be simulations. I think almost everyone agrees with that. I mean, it's, it's one of those philosophical riddles, you know, it, it could be possible. But what Bostrom mentioned is that if you really take this seriously and look at the math of it, you know, they would probably make many, many simulations for every real person. I mean, you could have a world where, you know, every kid has a video game that, that has a world with billions of people. Uh, so if there's billions of simulations to every real person, that means the odds are that if you're a random person or simulation, just as in that Emerald experiment, you're probably going to be one of the simulations, not one of the very rare real people. So <laughs> this is how you, uh, people started taking this really pretty seriously. Uh, and uh, again, uh, people like Elon Musk uh, said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, now, to take it seriously, you obviously have to have some optimism about technology. You have to think that our computing power is going to continue to grow exponentially for a long time and that you know virtual reality keeps getting better and better. But I think that's actually the easiest part of it uh, to, to, to believe in. Do you believe that we're in a simulation? Do you think there's a chance, uh, even if it's a... A slim one? Well, there's certainly a, a slim chance of it, but I do give an argument that even if you accept these audacious technological premises, you can still make a Bayesian case, sort of using the, uh, the doomsday math, that we're probably not in a simulation. Now, the way to do that is to look at this. Um, Bostrom says that if we did have simulations, we would need, like, planet-sized computers. Now, a lot of people believe that that's possible. If we do explore other planets, there may come a time where, you know, we can take a planet we don't need, like if we don't need Jupiter, we could turn it all into one big computer and have incredible computing power for whatever we wanted to use it for. So if you take it seriously, then we would have moved to many other planets. We would have huge populations in the future, Uh, And, you know, we would have all this computing power. But that means that the chances are that that if this this does come to pass, that most people are going to live in a society where uh, people are on many, many planets. And we're not. We're apparently very early in that time frame of invention. So that's a little reason to be skeptical about whether this really is going to come to pass. And you can figure, well, okay, maybe, maybe I'm a real person, or maybe I'm just a simulation of someone in the 21st century. But if they're able to do that, then there would be a much huger number of people who live in the future and who probably simulate you know, people in the future from our perspective. Uh, they're simulating people after the invention of simulation technology. Uh, and if you look at that, the odds, it's like having a very, very low serial number. Uh, we find ourselves in a world in which simulation technology apparently does not exist, if you take things at face value. Uh, a world that has not, you know, moved on to other planets. We're confined to one planet. For now. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and it, that's much more likely if there are never going to be simulations than if there are going to be simulations. Because if there are destined to be simulations, it would be extremely unusual to find ourselves, apparently, in a world that's limited to one planet and which does not have simulation technology. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. 
We talk a lot about Silicon Valley on this podcast. National Geographic's Valley of the Boom is a limited six-part series that tells the insanely true stories of the inventors and investors who built the internet, without whom there'd be no podcast like this one. The series follows three different companies that were trying to change the world using the new technology of the internet. Before Google, Netscape pioneered the first commercial web browser and launched the Browser Wars with Microsoft. But before Facebook, theglobe.com was a rapidly expanding social network site built by dreamers on a college campus. And before YouTube, a con artist, yes, that's right, a con artist, on the run from the FBI, reinvented himself in Silicon Valley to start a streaming video company called Pixelon, resulting in an entrepreneurial rise and a fall almost too insane to be believed. From the executive producer, Ariana Huffington, and the creator of Showtime's House of Lies, and starring Lamorne Morris, Bradley Whitford, and Steve Zahn, Valley of the Gods premieres Sunday, June 13th at 9, 8 central on National Geographic. It's incredible. You have to watch this one. So I saw a photo just this week, actually, that was taken from one of the telescopes last year that they had pieced together. I think it was mm-hmm. hundreds of photos that they had pieced together of a, a snippet of the universe. And I mm-hmm. think that there were, in that one image, there were 5,500 galaxies, each mm-hmm. galaxy having a billion planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably 13 million light years away, mm-hmm. you know, beginning of time, something like that. Um when you kind of start to think about all these things, do you think that we are alone here on this universe or that there's a chance that there are other living, breathing things out there, putting that we're not in a simulation, of course, uh, um, and that there's a chance that you could kind of apply this math to how we would ever meet them or see them, or mm-hmm. is it just us? Yes. In, in Gott's uh, 1993 paper in Nature, one of the things he addressed besides human extinction was, why don't we see any evidence of extraterrestrials? Uh, this is known as the Fermi question, because Enrico Fermi, the famous physicist, uh, had posed it back in the 1950s. Uh, he sort of figured that if there were intelligent beings out there, and it would seem there are so many planets that there almost have to be, Uh, Many of them would have technology much better than ours. Uh, So you would expect they would have had plenty of time by now to explore every planet in the galaxy. Uh, And yet we don't see any evidence that either they're coming here or that they ever have been here. Because even if you look in the fossil record, there's no indication that, uh, that aliens have ever been here. So this has always been a big puzzle. Um, you know, there, there are so many planets, it's hard to understand how we could be so alone as we seem to be. Uh, and again, in the 1960s, you had Frank Drake, who did the famous Drake Equation, which showed if you estimate how many stars there are in the galaxy, how many planets, uh, how many you think are going to have life, how many you think are going to have intelligent life, uh, even if you make what seem to be extremely conservative estimates, you still come up with there's a lot of intelligent species in the galaxy. And yet we've done, you know, we've listened for them with radio and we find no evidence for it. Uh, well, Gott's answer is that, uh, again, we should maybe apply some of this uh, this math. And the first thing he says, um, and he's big on visual aids. That's that's one of the, the things he showed me. Uh, he's done famous, you know, he was really a very famous teacher. Uh, and he will give these homespun visual aids to try and make things simple. And one of his visual aids is he's got some coasters. He puts them out on a table. And then he gets these little toy figures and puts them on the coasters. And you've got big coasters, you've got little coasters, you've got big mouse pads, and they're all representing planets. And you've got little people on them. And he says, which planet do you think you'd live on? And while people invariably say, probably one of the big planets with lots of people on them. It's more likely to be there than on a little planet that just has a few people on them. Now, what that means is that we should probably expect that we're living on one of the big populous planets, probably with our 7 million people. Uh, that's that's pretty uh, good population for planets uh, as, as they generally go. Uh, another thing he pointed out is that you can sort of do the same thing with time. Uh, if you look at the human population, 
I mean, it's, it's almost a hockey stick curve. There was, you know, many thousands, tens of thousands of years in which the human population was very small, in some cases less than 10,000 people. But now we're living with 7 billion people. And a, as I said, a very large proportion, maybe 7% of all the people who ever lived are living right now. Uh, so this indicates that people are bunched not only on certain planets, but at certain points in time. So we should sort of assume that, you know, we are one of these uh, people who have, uh, or one of these uh, intelligent species that has created a very large population. Uh, but we shouldn't necessarily assume that we're destined to occupy many planets and have a much larger population. Uh, and he basically argues that the chance that we're just living on the first of like a thousand planets that the Earth is going to uh, occupy is probably around about one in a thousand. It's not very great. Uh, so he's suggesting that, you know, you don't have to make all these ad hoc assumptions about extraterrestrial life. I mean, some people have said, well, maybe they don't want to contact us because it's known to be devastating for, for the society that is contacted. Uh, they've said maybe they sort of, uh, you know, uh, regard us as something like a zoo or a nature preserve. You know, they, they just put us off limits. But it's really easier to believe that, uh, that maybe it just isn't very common for uh, intelligent species to actually explore the galaxy and attain these really huge populations. Uh, and that's basically his, his response to this, that, uh, that there probably are intelligent species out there, but they don't necessarily achieve, you know, this sort of Star Trek vision of, of traveling the galaxy. And is that because in X number, like, so one of the things that I've heard from, you know, when you've spoken to folks in artificial intelligence, Nick mm -hmm. Bostrom says this, actually, uh, that... The in order to create to go back to the beginning of this podcast, in order to create the technology required to tread to travel to mm -hmm. other galaxies, uh, we would have to create essentially artificial intelligence that mm -hmm. would be smarter than humans. And that if we were to create that, we would probably end up killing ourselves mm -hmm. in the process. And therefore, any species that does create. Mm -hmm. Uh, the technology to to have interplanetary travel ends up destroying themselves in the process. Yes, exactly. That's that's sort of the Pandora's box uh, uh, theory, uh, and it's not just in artificial intelligence. You can say that if you consider just the energy that would be required to send spacecrafts to other planets, it would be a lot of energy. Uh, so if you can marshal all that energy, you would probably be able to marshal very big bombs. Uh, maybe you would have very big super colliders that might create some incredible catastrophe that would destroy everyone. So there's a lot of ways you can imagine that it's the natural thing for species to acquire technology, experience a population boom, uh, make all these great plans for exploring the galaxy, but then there's some scientific experiment or else just warfare or artificial intelligence, and for some reason, suddenly they go extinct. Uh, so it may be that it's very rare to get past that, and that's why there's very few uh, other ETs out there. Other ETs. Do you think that we are an intelligent species, or are we kind of a bit, a bit stupid sometimes? It's well, like... I think we're, we're definitely both. But, uh, <laughs> but if you make this same assumption, what if we assume we're random, probably those other species are a combination of very intelligent and very stupid. When you kind of think about the world we live in where, you know, a majority of Americans, for example, uh, believe in God or some mm -hmm. higher power, uh, um, What's what is your feeling on all those things? Do you think that there's a a reason that we're here? There's mm -hmm. a reason for all this, or you know, I mean, you sit down and you talk to these 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 people mm -hmm. that are way 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 smarter than I am, and mm -hmm. and I'm curious, do they believe that there's something larger to this, or is it just chance that we're here and we're just kind of running out the clock? <laughs> well, I think most people would say we're really in a state of pretty profound ignorance uh, as to the ultimate, you know causes of anything. But it is kind of interesting you mentioned that. Uh, Thomas Bayes, the guy back in the, the, uh, the 18th century who originated Bayes' theorem, which is basically the math we're using here, uh, he was actually a theologian. Uh, and he was uh, 
you know, in the time of the Enlightenment, uh, this was the time of David Hume and everything, uh, and a lot of people think that he actually came up with this uh, by trying to, to find some way of proving that the miracles in the Bible were actually true. Uh, because, you know, uh, a lot of people like David Hume were saying, you know, it, it really takes extraordinary evidence to, to prove something like that, and there is an extraordinary evidence. So he seems to have come up with this uh, in trying to figure out how do you evaluate evidence? Is there any way that, uh, that you can change your opinion based on enough evidence? And he may have been thinking along the lines that, well, if you have lots of people saying they saw a given miracle, then it would be credible. But the thing is, I mean, we're kind of limited to Holy Scripture. The Bible says that apparently there were a lot of people there at the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, but it's basically one evangelist who's telling us that. So the bottleneck is sort of that we're, we're basically depending on one person's uh, testimony. That's <laughs> so no. <laughs> Which is not an unusual yeah. situation, actually. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book, too, is, is the multiverse mm-hmm. and being able to kind of use this, uh, this calculation. Can, of course, this is, we're going kind of a little out there mm-hmm. in, in yeah. f- philosophy here, but uh, explain that a little bit mm-hmm. and, and how this applies to that. Yes. What well, in his, his regular work as an astrophysicist, this is one thing J. Richard Gott has been involved with, uh, under the theory of cosmic inflation, which is now a very you know, popular theory. Can you explain theory. cosmic inflation? Yeah. For- it, it basically explains the Big Bang, uh, which says that it, it started with a tiny little speck of vacuum. Uh, and based on quantum physics and general relativity, they believe that tiny speck of vacuum expanded exponentially in a split second, uh, basically transforming into the universe that we see today. Uh, But if you follow that theory, it makes... Okay, let me first say that this theory is believed because it makes a lot of valid predictions about things that we can check. Uh, If you look at the cosmic microwave background, it accounts for that. It accounts for the fact that we observe the curvature of the universe to be almost zero. So it really is very well confirmed in many ways. But the thing is, cosmic inflation has one really incredible prediction that a lot of people find hard to believe, and that's that we live in a multiverse. Uh, In other words, our universe is just part of one of many universes uh, in this whole multiverse, this whole ensemble, which in many versions of the theory is literally infinite. So that means there's an infinite number of universes Uh, In them, they would have other intelligent beings. And in fact, if you went long enough, you could find intelligent beings who are exactly like you and me. Uh, So it's really... So somewhere in another multiverse, there's two people... Well, there's only one multiverse, but there's many, many universes. In in the multiverse, there's another universe where there's two people recording a podcast and maybe one of them's wearing a blue sweater instead of a black one or something like that. So... Okay. Well, if, if you looked long at yes, you would find a blue sweater version, but if you looked long enough, you would find uh, a, a black sweater version. And if you looked long enough, you would find that uh, a one where that person is named Nick Bilton, and he's interviewing Bill Poundstone. Uh, so really, everything would be repeated endlessly. There would be universes that would mirror this universe. And what is the, what is the larger implication of that? Well, it's pretty mind-boggling to the extent that most physicists, I would say, are to some degree uncomfortable with it. I mean, it's... Uncomfortable with it because it makes them uncomfortable as human beings? Well, it just makes these flamboyant claims about this mind-boggling multiverse that no one can really confirm because we'd never be able to actually go in a spaceship and explore this multiverse because it's way, way out there. Uh, And in fact, Stephen Hawking, when he died, was trying to come up with uh, a version of the theory that would maybe save these predictions about the cosmic microwave background that we can confirm, but maybe not make so many gaudy claims about this multiverse. Uh, But it's very hard to do that. So, but if you take this uh, seriously, then, uh, you know, it it is a pretty amazing claim that, uh, that we're out there. So the question is, is there anything we can do to try to convince ourselves that this is a reasonable claim or else to, to prove it's not so reasonable. And one of them uh, is, is actually uses this same sort of math. 
because we have something that's, that's known as cosmic fine-tuning. Now, this is the observation that if you look at the universe, many of the attributes of our universe seem to be really fine-tuned to life and to intelligent life. Because if you look of our at, universe or a planet? Of, of our universe, not, not our planet. Because if you look at the exact strength of gravity relative to the strength of electromagnetic force, you can show that if it was just a little weaker or a little stronger, you would have a universe that was basically just all thin gas, where it would be impossible to have planets and stars and galaxies, and presumably it would be impossible to have any form of life. Uh, and it's not just those attributes, it's really a lot of them, like the dark, the proportion of dark matter, dark energy in the universe. Uh, even the fact that we have three dimensions of space really seems ideally suited to intelligent life, because if you think about it, we can imagine 2D beings, but it would be very hard to have a brain with all these inner connections if, if it had to exist in a plane. And you can imagine uh, 4D space, but if you did, you can actually show that it would be impossible to have planetary orbits in that 4D space. Hmm. So really, it's just in 3D space where you could have stars and stable orbits so that life could evolve. So in many, many ways, it seems really incredible that we're living in this fantastically unlikely universe that is suited to intelligent life. Now, there's different ways of explaining this. Uh, a popular one actually is, well, okay, maybe there's a, a purposeful creator who, you know, could have, was sitting at the control board, could have chosen any of these physical constants, and he or she figured, okay, I'm going to choose it so that we'll have intelligent life capable of ethical and moral, you know, decisions. That will be really interesting, so I'm going to, you know, do that kind of universe. <laughs> And that's one possible explanation. But if you try to do a, a strictly rationalist explanation, uh, you come up with the fact that it is hard to explain why our universe is so finely tuned for, for intelligent life. But the, uh, the multiverse theory provides a very neat explanation for that. Because uh, it, it proposes that each uh, universe in the multiverse actually has a completely different type of physics. So there's a very, very small proportion of universes that just happen to have the right physics for intelligent life. Now, naturally, we find ourselves in one of those universes, but it could be that the vast majority of universes are completely lifeless, and we'd have no way of knowing that. So in, uh, just out of curiosity, mm -hmm. do you believe that there was someone at the controls that, that put all this together, or that it's just random <laughs> chance? Uh, I'd prefer, well, I mean, you, you try to make as few extreme assumptions as possible. Uh, and that's why the multiverse uh, theory is appealing, because it says you don't have to assume that someone was at the, the control but, uh, panel. But, it, but someone, okay, but if some, no one was at the control panel in the mm -hmm. universe, and the was someone at the control panel in the multiverse? Uh, no, not even at that, at least if you accept uh, cosmic inflation theory, because it gives a pretty good explanation of how, based on quantum theory, you would have all these different universes in the multiverse with different types of physics. And this all goes, to, does this, is this parallel to the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics? Uh, it's actually it, different from that, different but it, it poses some of the same issues, yeah. So they're basically saying that, that we just, I mean, obviously we live on a planet that's suited for, for intelligent life. Uh, that goes without saying. We don't live on Neptune because Neptune, as far as we know, is not suited for that. So similarly, it looks like we just happen to live in one of the universes that is suitable for intelligent life as well. Uh, and a lot of people think this is a very appealing explanation for that. And it's using sort of this same sort of math. It's interesting when you, I, you, you talk to, when I, I speak to, you know, cosmologists and astrophysicists and, and folks like you, there's an explanation for why all of this stuff works. And like you mm -hmm. said, there's this, um, if you if everything was off by a, a tiny little percentage mm -hmm. point, um, it all wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And and what I find so hard to get my head around and so interesting is, um, <clears throat> you know, we're sitting here. There's this technology that we're using that mm -hmm. I, that is works because mm -hmm. people like Einstein and and so on figured mm -hmm. out all these algorithms that allowed us to make mm -hmm. this technology. Mm -hmm. And but but the math 
the math was already there. We just found it, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I find so difficult is to understand is um, if if the math was already there and we Mm -hmm. just found it, someone had to have put it there. It's not, Mm -hmm. isn't there... Or something. Oh, but how do you know that? Uh. But because okay, if you, if 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 you were walking in the desert mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there was a skyscraper, you wouldn't say, <laughs> "Oh my God!" It must have uh. just been a random act of sand coming together uh. with <laughs> with water to create cement uh. and this, that, and the other. And there's a skyscraper. You would say someone had to put the skyscraper mm-hmm. there. Or even yeah. if you were walking through the desert and there were like instructions on how to build mm-hmm. a skyscraper, it seems like when you, even though we don't understand what how quantum mechanics works properly. Mm-hmm. We do understand the you know theory of relativity, all these things, and they are math equations that mm-hmm. work. So, yeah. is that just are we just applying something to the universe mm-hmm. that, or our universe, or is it that that they work because someone, not someone, but something mm-hmm. created them? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a very good question. Um, you can always ask why, and that's part of the things that. I guess philosophers do first, but scientists do second. Uh, but I'm not sure that anyone has a good explanation of how where the math came from that makes the physics possible. Uh, but that's a very valid question. Do when you kind of... I mean, it is metaphysical, but uh, I, I like mes- metaphysical questions, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, so you've written, uh, this is your 14th book? Uh don't quote me on that, but I think, I yeah. I think it's your yeah. 14th book. Um, and you've written about Carl Sagan. You've mm-hmm. written um, – uh, well, you've talked to all these folks for, mm-hmm. for many, 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 many years. What is the thing that – is there some larger thing you're looking for the answer mm-hmm. for? Or do you just find all of this stuff very fascinating and that's what's drawn you to it? No, uh, I mean, the great thing about being a professional author is that you can kind of write about what really interests you. Uh, and this kind of really got my attention, so uh, you know, I figured there'd be a book in it. And do you think is there any realization you came to in the process of reporting the book and writing the book that you didn't have when you set out to write it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I certainly am inclined to to believe that you know we may have less than a thousand years le- left, and we better make the best of it. You know. Do you think there's anything we could do if we if if let's just say that. All the scientists in the world said, okay, this is accurate. Mm-hmm. We know that this is a reality. We have 762 years left. Would, do you think humans would actually do anything different? Uh, well, there's a, a lot of people won't, but uh, you know, there's a lot of very bright people who you know, uh, are trying to, to do something different. Uh, certainly John Leslie, the philosopher, is one of these people saying, we have this moral obligation to take this, uh, this finding uh, and really put it to use. If we can change the prior probabilities uh, that we will survive beyond this time, uh, we, we, we definitely should uh, attempt to do so. Uh, Nick Bostrom is devoting his whole life to artificial intelligence because he thinks that's the most plausible doomsday threat that uh, that is really facing us now. So yeah, this is not a cause for despair. And if you <laughs> and if you look the eight book, generations later, the end comes. It's not a. Yeah, I, I did kind of agonize about the ending of the book. How do, how do you do this without it being a downer? And I have what I think is a good kind of optimistic ending there. And that is? Uh, well, kind of based on this idea that, that, that we do have the power to, to realize that we, you know, if we want to survive a long time, if we want to have that Star Trek future, we've really got to beat the odds. So it's like saying, you know, if I want to be in the Olympics and win, get that gold medal, uh, the first thing I have to do is realize how much the odds are against me. And then I can maybe rationally decide what things that would have to be done to actually achieve that goal. Do you think that um, uh, one of the Nick Bostrom just put out a paper recently that I read about um, talking about new technologies, and he he references he he likens technologies uh, to balls being pulled out of an urn, um, mm-hmm. and he says that. Uh, the most technologies we've created have been either white balls or gray balls. Mm-hmm. Um, the white ones being majority <laughs> for good and the gray yeah. ones uh, having some negative impacts. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, nuclear yeah. fusion led to the nuclear bomb, but it also led to nuclear mm-hmm. energy. That's a gray mm-hmm. ball. Uh, it could have been a black ball had mm-hmm. led to the end of civilization. Yeah. And he argues that 
that eventually we are probably going to pull a mm-hmm. black ball out of that urn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, two questions for you. One is when you think about all of these things, these technologies and the possible end of civilization mm-hmm. and so on, what do you think is the black ball that actually ends us? Do you think it's a, it's, it's a technological thing? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's Malthusian where we run mm-hmm. out of food? Is it, is it, um, uh, climate change and mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, do, do we burst into the sun and that's <laughs> the end of it? Uh, or, or what's your theory? Okay, well, let me give you three answers to that. Okay. Okay, just in the time I was writing this book, maybe two and a half years, uh, the whole climate change thing became a lot scarier than it was. I mean, uh, when I started writing this book, they were kind of saying, okay, you know, it's going to be over hundreds of years. You're not going to notice the weather being different. But now the whole state's on fire, or was recently. Uh, so we're really realizing that, you know, that could be kind of serious. And there are people who are concerned that we could turn the planet into another Venus, that there would be a runaway greenhouse effect and all the oceans would boil away and, you know, uh, it would be impossible to have any life here. So that's one thing that has become more serious than it was. But I'm kind of optimistic on that one because I think that if it really became clear that, you know, this planet was going to become uninhabitable in a thousand years, we might be able to do something to change it, like capture the carbon dioxide, something, who knows. But I I think there's reason for for some optimism there. Uh, The other thing... uh, one of the things I go into the book is just the possibility that maybe there's some physics experiment that's going to be the black ball. Like maybe we'll build some really powerful collider. And I go into several scenarios there, but one concern was that you might be able to create what's known as a metastable vacuum event. Now, we think of a vacuum as empty space, right? But in quantum theory, there's no such thing as empty space. There's always some virtual particles in that space. And it might be that there's more than one kind of vacuum. In fact, there are in this uh, this cosmic inflation theory. Uh, but what we're concerned about is that there might be a type of vacuum that's even lower energy than the one that we've got today. And if that were right, it's it's at least conceivable that you could have you know some sort of physics experiment that would create what they call a tiny bubble of this lower energy vacuum. If that ever happened, our vacuum would convert into that low energy vacuum, and it would basically be the end, not just of us, but of the entire universe. Uh, The bubble of vacuum (laughs) would zoom outward at the speed of light. It would consume the entire universe, including any ETs out there. Uh, So almost just like in a movie, like, yes, done. Like the end of The Sopranos, that would be us. Uh, And the thing is, we don't just have to worry about our scientists uh, doing that experiment. Maybe like in the Andromeda Galaxy today, they're doing that experiment and they've, you know, destroyed themselves. That bubble is going to be coming towards the Earth at the speed of light, but there's no way we'll know about it because we won't actually see uh, it destroying the Andromeda galaxy until the bubble hits Earth and destroys us. And even if we did see it, there's not much we could do about it. Yes, exactly. But, but, but what's interesting, uh, I, I go into in one chapter there, you can actually do an analysis based on this sort of doomsday math uh, that shows we can be reasonably confident that that's not going to happen. Reasonably? So, yes, yes. <laughs> so there is some good news there. Um, if that is the case, uh, why are we letting scientists build these colliders? Well, you definitely uh, want to make sure they're safe, uh, but even in, with the Large Hadron Collider, uh, there was speculation that it might create micro-black holes. Uh, these would be tiny, tiny black holes. Uh, and if they existed, they would presumably start er- orbiting the Earth's center. Uh, with each pass, they would sweep up some of the Earth's mass, and eventually, I guess, you'd convert the whole planet into a black hole. Now, obviously, this Was didn't... that the election of Donald Trump? Or... No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, this was thing a few dissident scientists had concern about. So, as I say, you know, you, you wonder how this is going to play out. Uh, with each <clears throat> collider, it is more powerful. 
Uh, it does pose new risks that we've never seen before. And as Bostrom says, we really don't have the, the cognitive infrastructure to understand the whole concept of existential risk, meaning a risk that would destroy everyone and everything. Uh, we don't because we've never, you know, encountered it before, obviously. And you can encounter it until you pull that black ball out of the urn and then it's the end. Okay, well, this is, uh, <laughs> this is uh, heartwarming. Um, but remember, the book has a happy ending. Yes, <laughs> uh, as we've all sucked into a, a low-gravity universe, and that's the end of it. Uh, would, if that were to happen with the collider, would it take the multiverse with it or just our universe? Uh, that would, that's a good question. I've not thought of that. Huh. I think it would just be our universe. Oh, yeah. so the, yeah. the the Nick Dalton and the William Poundstone on another universe would be perfectly yes, fine? Yes, oh, all, well, our, that's okay, all our clones then. out there would be okay, actually. <laughs> um, uh, all right, last couple of questions for you. Um, if you... So one of the things I... Well, actually, to my, my third reason oh, yeah, that's to right. be yep. concerned. Uh, again, after having read Bostrom's papers, I tend to uh, concur with him that we really should be concerned about artificial intelligence. That was what I was So that's another next. thing that you... So, so, so artificial... Do you believe we're going to build artificial intelligence, intelligent as us or more so? Yeah, I, I think almost anyone, at least in tech culture, believes that's going to happen eventually. And for that reason, it's kind of scary if you're saying that maybe that's the black ball. But the, we, so it's interesting because we always talk for, for years, we talk about, uh, I, we've always talked about um, through history that the thing that separates us from animals is, is art. And I've been saying recently mm -hmm. that I, I don't actually believe that's the case. There are mm -hmm. animals out there that do create art for want of a better word but but it's technology we mm -hmm. you know we create technologies and that's mm -hmm. what humans do that no other species does mm -hmm. and um and it seems like we create it it is something that is innate in us that we are unable to stop ourselves from doing yeah um and yet at the same time it is the thing that is likely going to lead to our demise mm -hmm. Is, it, is this a bug or a feature or what, what, what is this? Well, I think it's, it's part of uh, being human. Uh, and that's why it's scary because with other things like climate change or even nuclear war, you can at least hope that we'll have sensible leaders. Now isn't a great time to say that, but, you know, uh, for, we have gone a long time with nuclear weapons without using them. We can hope that continues in the future. But artificial intelligence has this sense of inevitability. Uh, even if we go slow now, eventually we're going to get there. Uh, the concern is that uh, when we come close to it, I mean, we're going to have machines uh, designing machines and designing new generations of machines. And you could have a situation where you have what's known as an intelligence explosion, where the power of computers just grows abruptly exponentially. The trouble, as Bostrom says, is that you really have to make sure that you've programmed human values and you know human human uh, ethics into those computers because once that intelligence explosion happens, there's really no way of calling it back and saying no, we gotta redo this. Well, it's interesting that there's, um, I was reading a paper recently about. Um, Muhammad Ali, the boxer, mm -hmm. and uh, Rocky, the the other boxer, and mm -hmm. they they did a, um, a a prize fight essentially many 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 years ago, uh, where they they were filmed. Um, it was the real boxing, but it wasn't mm -hmm. you know it wasn't it wasn't to see who would win. But they were filmed doing uh, Rocky Balboa. Yeah, uh, the real one. They <laughs> okay. were filmed doing okay. a. Um, I think it was a hundred uh, one minute rounds uh -huh. of them fighting. And then there was a computer and this is like in the seventies, eighties, something like that mm -hmm. in the eighties, I believe. Um, uh, and there was a computer algorithm they had written mm -hmm. that would then figure out who would win in a, uh, in a real fight. And uh, Muhammad Ali lost. And mm -hmm. he joked that it was because white people had, had written the computer <laughs> algorithm. And, uh, and I thought it was pretty amazing that even back then people were, didn't were mm -hmm. able to realize that the people building yeah. the machines are the ones that could mm -hmm. we we currently live in a time where it, it the look the folks who have built the internet today mm -hmm. uh not the beginning guys but the ones mm -hmm. at the end um have really fucked it up uh, mm -hmm. um and they have uh 
they haven't thought about the, the consequences of the things that they have mm-hmm. built. How are we going to ensure that the people building these robots are mm-hmm. not going to are, are actually going to think through the ramifications, or is it just mm-hmm. impossible? Well, that's really the question that Bostrom is working on, and obviously no one has a good answer at this point. Uh, But as you say, I mean, you have this vision that the few people in some lab somewhere who finally get the last step towards artificial intelligence, I mean, they're the ones who are going to be inventing this whole ethical universe for the future. Uh, And that's a pretty scary thought, because even if they're basically decent people, I mean, they have their own concerns, and they're not going to be everyone else's concerns. Uh, So the question is how you get you know, the whole human race's input into this, and that's a very vexing problem. Uh, I think the problem is not so much that that computers and robots are just going to automatically turn evil. I mean, that's sort of how people misrepresent Bostrom's research. Uh, But really the concern is, if you look at this realistically, a successful artificial intelligence would be like a genie. Uh, it could grant wishes of wealth, health, longevity, anything you want. So you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of, uh, of academic teams, a lot of companies, a lot of, uh, of uh, companies uh, and countries uh, basically racing towards this finish line. And that creates some very bad incentives. Uh, it basically says you should cut corners uh, because you got to get there first. You can't you know, be as careful as you might be otherwise. But that's that's a pretty scary thought. This has all been pretty scary, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I I urge everyone to read the book. It's it's amazing. Um, it's called the Doomsday Calculation. My guest today has been William Poundstone. How an equation that predicts the future is transforming everything we know about life and the universe, or even the multiverse. <laughs> uh, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Bill Poundstone. I'm sure if you have listened all the way through to this, your head is spinning just like mine is. Really pick up this book. It's out in June, and it's uh, it's pretty incredible, honestly. Uh, it really gets your, your mind going in lots of different directions. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Yes, that is me. You can find this on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, National Geographic's Valley of the Boom. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week unless the universe ends before then.